Well, hello again, Zane Horowitz and the whole crew from the Oregon Poison Center. It is October 29th, just days before Halloween here, and we're setting up another journal club. So if you ever want to trick-or-treat as something that really scares most physicians, just go as a long QT interval. Um, it's like spiders and snakes, everyone's afraid of it, but in reality, the most part doesn't hurt too many people. We're going to start out with a couple. Uh, so today's uh, journal club is entitled... Um, quinidine syncope, from there and back again, a little play on J.R.R. Tolkien there, but we'll talk about how we started out with quinidine syncope, how it evolved into our sods, and um, back with some new articles from the last month or so on new uses for quinidine and some new risks for severe arrhythmias of the tersod variety with another drug from another area. But we'll start out with the term quinidine syncope. It was an article from Circulation back in 1964. It certainly wasn't the first article to use the term quinidine syncope, but um, had some great case descriptions and great EKGs to go along with it that we all would recognize very easily as, boy, that looks like Croissant de Pont. They mentioned that at that time in the 60s, quinidine had been around for 45 years, and they noted that occasionally people would have syncopal attacks, attacks while using it, which were found in some cases to be paroxysms of ventricular flutter, a term we no longer use. Well, they described eight cases that occurred over the late 1950s and early 60s, and I'll, I'll just give you a taste of a few of these. Um, they all have similar themes to them. Um, there was, uh, you know, a priming dose that was usually used of 0.2 grams of quinidine sulfate every four hours instead of a treatment for ventricular fibrillation or atrial fibrillation, I should say. And they were able to measure levels, and the average conversion of AFib occurred when levels got between 10 and 20 milligrams per liter. And usually levels were kept under 15, but felt to be toxic when it got up to about 25. So that's sort of guidelines as what to judge these levels for. They also would treat you until their QRS complex prolonged by more than 25%, and then they, or they sort of lots of PVCs, which case they would stop treating at that point. So a couple of these cases, many of them sound very familiar to each other. First case dates back to 1958, long time. 54-year-old woman, had mitral stenosis and atrial fibrillation. She was controlled with DID. She had a mitral valvotomy. She got that same treatment, that 0.2 grams of quinine sulfate every four hours. It was increased up to two-hour method um, because it was ineffective. She complained of feeling numb, vomited, and had a convulsive seizure where she became deeply cyanotic. Her respiration stopped. At that time, this is pre-ACLS, remember, they opened her chest and did internal cardiac massage, and she didn't make it. How far we've come in many years. 55-year-old woman, another case, rheumatic heart disease, mitral stenosis, AFib, also mitral valvotomy, same dose of quinine sulfate, 0.2 grams every four hours. Um, she um, had a prolonged QT interval, which they noted on there. She started feeling funny, had a sudden convulsive seizure with both fecal and urinary incontinence, but by the time they hooked her up and did a little mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, it resolved spontaneously. And then she had a second one later on, and they noted ventricular irritability with multiple PVCs and runs 
of VTAC and the rhythm strip that's printed here, which looks like it would have been pulled from a 2010 textbook on torsade with the twisting of the points, the short, long, short interval precipitating classic torsades. And many of the other cases were similar. Many of these people were middle-aged in the 40s to 50s. Many of them had mitral valve disease. They all came in with AFib. They all got this loading dose and uh, treatment for, at the time, AFib, which was quinine sulfate. In most cases, one got quinine, quinidine gluconate in the other case. And they all started feeling funny and then either had a seizure or a respiratory or cardiac arrest and noted rhythm strips, which they published, that all look very much like torsade. Um, one person had what they thought was a cerebral embolism as well, which we know is a risk factor for mitral valve disease and atrial fibrillation. But at that point in time, people went on promorphine for this. Um, so these 10 reactions occurred in eight patients, showing the toxic effect of quinidine. Um, and they, they didn't coin the term, but they said the term that's used for describing this is quinidine syncope. And they really didn't talk too much about the long QT interval, but um, basically that was noted in a few of the case reports. Um, none of the cases was the dose at the time for quinidine considered excessive. Quinidine blood levels, when they were obtained embedded in the studies, were mostly below the level of where AFib converts spontaneously. There were two that were moderately high but clearly not toxic. The onset of symptoms usually occurred from one to three and a half hours after the dosing, loading doses were started. And they go on to say they had 36 attacks occurring in eight patients, all very similar to each other. They all began with the vague complaint of nausea, faintness, ill feeling, immediately followed by loss of consciousness, cyanosis, frequent convulsions, some that terminated spontaneously, some that required what at that time would have passed for CPR or open chest cardiac uh, massage. And they estimate that the incidence of this is about 3 to 5% of people who take quinidine, develop quinidine syncope. So that was an early form, and they suggested this term preferential to an older term, which was called quinidine shock, um, which was used in the literature at that time. So that was the 1960s in our understanding of long QT interval. I have to jump forward a little bit to an article in the 1970s, which was an editorial, uh, one of the first in the U.S., starts out with a nice quote from Shakespeare, which we're sure all familiar with it, what's in a name, that's which we call a rose by any other name, which smell is sweet. They talk about the derivation of the word torsade, which was published in the French literature, but not very used in uh, the U.S. literature. One of the first cases was in the Archives des Maladies du Corps, can imagine what that is from, in France. Torsade means twisting, fringe, twist, or coil, or thick bouillon. Um, they go back and find their way of reports that may have been consistent with this dating back to the 1920s, in fact, over 50 years. And But basically the term transient ventricular fibrillation is often the one that was used up until this point, until they describe this unique electrocardiographic appearance occurring both during and between attacks with paroxysms of ventricular tachycardia in which the QRS axis undulates over runs of 5 to 20 beats with definite changes in direction. And they talk about all the different terms that were used. One of my favorites was cardiac ballet. Um, 
And these fairly long runs, but they tend to be proximal and brief and self-terminating in many cases. Again, publishing a script that looks, for all intents and purposes, like Torsad, as we know it. In fact, that's what they were describing. Most of these attacks stop spontaneously. Syncope often results. The ventricular complex is often has, shows a wide QRS. And they notice that the ventricular exosystole usually falls on the T wave preceding a sinus beat and therefore precipitating torsade at that point. Be careful. You're going to look at all the other things. They added that magical S to that torsade to make it torsades, the point, since the original articles came out. But the French used the term in the singular at the time. What they say back in 1976 hasn't changed very much. It's suspected uh, with bradycardias, often with high-grade AV block, some of the causes they describe were hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. No surprise to us nowadays. They had a little table of, of those, including other drugs at the time that might precipitate it, such as quinidine, oligonocaine, and procainamide, and then psychotropic medications such as phenothiazines and tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, they also talked about some of the congenital long QT syndromes, such as uh, Gervell, Lang, and Romano Ward syndrome. Um, which are associated with and without hearing loss. And acknowledging that quinidine has been an, an association with this for probably many years, but has not been, that term has not been applied to it. They also mentioned, um, which I had forgotten, but it's also associated with Prince metal angina at times. Um, and they talk about, you know, what you can do to treat it, which is countershock it, fix the potassium, fix the magnesium, or infuse isoprenaline, which was a, another term for isoprel at the time to tr create overdrive pacing, which in fact is the main therapy of cardiac pacing involved. So there you have two historical articles, one about quinidine syncope, one about Poissade, and naming it as we have such in the mid-70s. So we're going to start out talking about some pediatric toxicity. Um, one of the things that I always say, hmm, I always hate when someone gives a lecture that says that one pill can kill. So this group tackled that concept for both quinidine and quinidine, and we have our EM resident, Val, tell us a little bit about that. Hello. Um, hmm. My name is Val Griffith. Um, hmm. So I'm talking about an article, are one or two pills uh, dangerous um, in toddlers, specifically? Uh, and so this is based on um, a couple of case reports, uh, and then also, um, I believe it's a textbook, um, or uh, some sort of book uh, by uh, Bar Oz et al. from uh, 2004. Um, basically, that you know, the title of the book was "Medications That Can Be Fatal for Toddlers with One Tablet or Teaspoon." Um, and and in that book, um, they reported that the minimum fatal dose could be as low as 80 milligrams per kilogram. Um, and so this article basically went through um, you know presentations of uh, quinine and quinidine overdose, talking about different GI symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea. Um, CNS effects, including altered mental status, headaches, uh, visual and hearing disturbances. Um, apparently, uh, quinine, although also quinidine, can cause direct retinal toxicity. Uh, also mentioned the, the vertigo and uh, seizures, and then 
uh, at the further, furthest end of the spectrum coma. Uh, and then, of course, the cardiovascular toxicity, including uh, dysrhythmias, which uh, quinidine has more than quinine at therapeutic doses. Um, and then, you know, with the major cardiovascular dysrhythmia being sinus tachycardia, uh, but then also potentially having other more severe dysrhythmias. Um, as well as myocardial depression, which can cause hypotension, um, leading to um, also pulmonary edema. edema. Um, and then they also noted, interestingly, that there's no clear pattern of whether CNS or cardiovascular symptoms might occur first, and so you might see one or the other without um, any relationship to the dosing or the exposure dose. Uh, and so this was, this article basically looked at what the evidence is for um, there being a toxic effect in children uh, exposed to a very low dose, um, one or two pills. Uh, they basically said that there are only two case reports, one for each um, quinine and quinidine that indicate that a very low dose could be toxic. Um, and one of these articles for quinine was actually an abstract um, that didn't end up having much information. Um, it was basically a 16-month-old toddler who had a systole, uh, multiple bouts of a systole, actually, after a 600-milligram uh, quinine exposure. Uh, they do also talk about higher exposures that um, did cause uh, death in these different case, re case reports. Um, there's one by Lan uh, Langford et al. Um, that looked at 13 uh, overdoses in toddlers, um, and, and that series are actually were only two that had symptoms, one with vomiting, one with uh, drowsiness, although the doses for these two cases weren't reported. Uh, the other 11 toddlers were asymptomatic. Um, in the Groton and Smith case series, um, there were uh, actually quite a few that had larger doses of uh, uh, quinine that caused, uh, that caused death. Um, they also mentioned one had an anoxic brain injury that they thought was due to um, airway obstruction from a, a charcoal emesis, basically. Uh, and then for quinidine, uh, they mentioned uh, a 21-month-old girl who had uh, 480 milligrams of a quinidine preparation that's no longer in use, um, isoamyl ethyl barbiturate. Um, and she had um, atrial tachycardia, uh, first and second degree AV block, um, QT prolongation. Uh, but she actually improved with uh, lidocaine and hypertonic saline. Uh, and so she didn't end up dying, but they do mention higher toxic uh, doses that did uh, produce lethality. And so their conclusion was basically that there was poor evidence that uh, one or two pills of these medications are dangerous in toddlers, but of course, higher doses can be fatal. Yes, this has often been one of those things where they say these are very toxic drugs, which they can certainly be. There are potent sodium channel blocking, um, class 1A antidysrhythmics. Um, so like most cardiovascular medicines, we treat them with a great deal of caution and often send these kids in. But truthfully, at least looking back through big case series, poison center databases, there really aren't any significant cases. There's just a handful of one or two poorly documented cases where either quinine or quinidine sulfate uh, caused the problem. The good news, I guess, is that quinine as tablets have disappeared, and quinidine 
really never ever used anymore as an antiarrhythmic drug as we've moved on to more medications that are in the class one. And many of those have come and gone and been on the market and taken off as well. So we keep searching for a less toxic alternative to suppress our arrhythmias. But the truth is, if you look back at some of those early reports, there's people that say a valve disease that blow to the and they actually converted. So maybe there's still some use in some of these old drugs. We're going to get back to quinidine at the end, but we're going to change gears and talk about some of the psychiatric drugs that have been involved in QT prolongation, which are many. And to kind of give us a sort of complete overview of that, Peter, our fellow. All right. Well, we've got a nice review article done by uh, Scott R. Beach regarding QT prolongations, that torsades, as well as the risk with psychotropic medications. You know, we start off by, of course, describing how, what it is that the QT interval is and describing how we go about doing that and knowing that the prolonged QT interval puts the desperlysis at risk for the development of torsades. Um, all goes on to note that there are many risk factors that go along with that, medications, pharmacologic factors, as well as just inherent factors, including genetics and uh, predisposition to long QT syndrome. Uh, this was a non-systemic review, but what they did do was just go look through articles using PubMed, searching for QT prolongation, torsade de foin, and antipsychotics. And then it searched through some of the references that were found there. Again, we get back to a description of how to measure your QT interval, and then the different variances in your QT interval. Um, typically, if you're using your EKG machine, they tend to measure the QT in all of the leads. And then they tend to pick a longer one than what you actually see. Uh, you can, oftentimes what they recommend if you're going to do it by yourself or with one person, you may want to pick the steepest slope of the T wave. And you're usually going to use lead 2 or V5 to go ahead and get your measurement for that. They go on further to talk about the different ways that we correct for that as we know that QT is inversely proportional to the heart rate. We tend to use Bazette's formula, our QT over the square root of the RR interval. Although... There are multiple guidelines, and even the AHA kind of suggests that this is really not the way to go. Um, QT dispersion may, in fact, just be the better way to go about getting an actual assumption for your QT. Um, then, yeah, go on to discuss a few that the QTC interval needs to be measured at baseline. Um, when it, when you need to measure baseline so that you can accurately calculate how long you have uh, extended your QT interval with the drugs. They go on to point out that. Your, Q, your normal QT is going to vary by sex and by age. Um, most of the gender differences arise somewhere in the t adolescence and teenage years uh, due to the effect of testosterone. But as a simple way of remembering it, that a QTC of less than 460 is not considered normal in women and less than 450 is considered normal in men. Next thing I want to describe torsades, which is a form of polymorphic VTAC that we see. Uh, known as a malignant arrhythmia, um, supposed to mean twisting of the points, and that just kind of refers to what it is exactly that we see. Your treatments, um, usually magnesium, overdrive pacing, you can try other antiarrhythmics, as well as isoproteranol, isoproteranol as well to give you that pharmacologic overdrive pacing more than anything else. Um, you need to remove the offending agent and increase the heart rate. If you don't do that, you run the risk of it repeating over and over again, as well as developing ventricular uh, fibrillation and death. They also want to point out about there's a greater relationship in the nomogram that will pop up later as well, that for approximately every millisecond over what you expect a normal QTC to be, 
you've increased the your hazard ratio by 1.052. So the patient with a QTC of 500 milliseconds has a 1.6 fold greater risk of a sudden cardiac event than the patient that has a QTC of 400. And if you're at 550, that risk has gone up to 2.14. Risk factors for one described risk factors for prolonged QTC as well as torsades. Um, one of the things that is described here that we know quite a bit about is actually long QT syndrome, which can arise from hundreds <coughs> of mutations and what have already been identified as 10 genes. And that torsades is kind of a hallmark of this long QT syndrome and is a frequent cause of death and syncope with patients that have this. Overall prevalence of mutation is about one per 2,000 individuals, although those that clinically manifest the disease with syncope or resuscitated sudden cardiac death is less common. Although from what I remember, this was one of those theories as to what was going on with the when we were using it for bedwetting in children mm -hmm. rather than sudden infant death that we were missing long QT. Um, about 88 patients, 80, most of the people that do have Long QT syndrome, 88% of them have a prolonged QTC at baseline. But, and, and importantly, 5 to 10% of those patients who develop the drug induced torsade the point are silent carriers of the same gene mutations for long QT, suggesting that we may have another second hit, such as the drug exposure, that's really going to be the cause for our long QT syndrome. And then we've had a few that even have. Uh, in the phenotype that despite having a normal QTC in their unprovoked state, may go ahead and develop that with uh, drugs as well. Uh, QTC in the normal range carriers of silent mutations are more susceptible to additional QT prolonging factors and are still in the elevated risk for arrhythmia. Besides genetic mutations, uh, which we know are worse factors for it, there are many others that he goes to list in a table, things such as being female, your increased age, electrolyte abnormalities, anorexia, diuretic use, heart conditions and other medical conditions that presumably do the same that will still affect your electrolyte abnormalities and potentially place you on some of these medications that we know that will cause other problems, that will cause acute prolongation. Um, he goes on to describe that most of our medications that are going to prolong the QTC, they're blocking our uh, delayed rectifier channel, our potassium channel, and can induce that torsade to point and causing sudden death in even healthy individuals. Uh, they did point out that amiodarone and renalazine, for example, may prolong the QT substantially. However, those two are not those two are not associated with torsade the point. Whereas quinidine, which causes only moderate QT prolongation, moderate QT prolongation, was has been clearly associated with torsade. Um, and the explanation for this may be related to the lower QT dispersion seen with the amiodarone and the renazoline and, and the greater dispersion that can be seen with uh, quinidine. Um, we can also think back and see that we've had other, other drugs that have been pulled off the market, including terfenidine and cisapride, because of their, the, their concerns for the development of torsade point as well. Um, another example, we know that methadone has been known to cause QT prolongation, although not many cases of methadone causing torsades, and it appears to be a unique effect to methadone that's not seen in other opiates. Uh, multiple drug-drug interactions, and these seem to be fairly common. Um, the ones that we worry the most about are our macrolide antibiotics, as well as our antifungals. 
uh, ritonavir, never to forget our antiretrovirals, as well as grapefruit juice. Now, decreased liver function seems to lead to a higher level of serum drug concentration, which can then go on to elevate your risk of torsade deployment. Uh, future directions in risk assessment, given the limitations of actually correlating your QTC with torsade risks, people advocated for using the nomogram and using the QT heart rate pairs, similar to the way that we use the nomogram for acetaminophen. It seems that if you manage to fall below the line, your risk of having uh, increased risk of torsades is actually fairly low. If you manage to make it over the line, then as you expect, your risk goes up. Um, in a study using the metrics, they found that the nomogram was much better in predicting torsade than using our Bazette's formula that we most commonly use, and that the nomogram was both highly sensitive and highly specific. Um, other markers that we can do if you're not familiar with the nomogram, can't use the nomogram, um, you can look at the morpho suggested morphology of the T wave as well as the presence of the U waves. U waves seem to be a better predictor of drug-induced torsades than the QTC prolongation. And then it's been suggested that abnormalities, the inverted biphasic and notched uh, T waves, may indicate abnormalities in the repolarization, which may predispose you again to torsades. We move on to <laughs> the medication portion of this group, starting with the antidepressants, starting with the SSRIs. You know that SSRIs uh, come along in the, in the 1980s with fluoxetine and have been consistently used as a replacement for patients as TCAs for patients, especially those with heart disease. Uh, according to the registry that we keep, the International Registry for Drug-Induced Arrhythmias, the Arizona classification lists fluoxetine, paroxetine, and sertraline in group 4, which considers them unlikely to cause QT prolongation or increase the risk for torsades when used at recommended doses without other factors. Uh, of course, we know that over the years there have been case reports linking nearly every SSRI, with the exception of paroxetine, to QT prolongation, and in some of those cases, uh, torsades as well. Although there's no real good systemic review, it's mostly just anecdotal stories and your case reports. There has been emerging evidence over the last decade, specifically looking at citalopram, um, causing QT interval prolongation. Uh, back in two, August of 2011, the FDA had actually set the maximum dose at 40 milligrams per day in patients with uh, hepatic impairment or age greater than 60 years, specifically due to this risk of uh, long QT torsades. They went ahead and came back and they've kind of withdrawn from that. They now say citalopram should no longer be used at dose greater than 40 per day, but citalopram is not recommended at doses greater than 40 milligrams per day downgrading to talipam from contraindicated to not recommended for patients with long QT syndrome, and a recommendation to discontinue citalopram in any patient with a QT interval that's longer than 500 milliseconds. The warnings that they developed were actually done by a crossover study done by the FDA where they actually treated patients, gave them 22 days of treatment, separated by 14 days for your washout. They would give them 20 milligrams daily for nine days of citalopram, 40 milligrams daily for four days, 60 milligrams for nine days, and then treat them with placebo. Uh, some of the groups also additionally received moxifloxacin uh, and then had QT intervals measured. The maximum mean prolongation of the QT interval was somewhere were 8.5 uh, milliseconds for the 20 milligram group and 18.5 milliseconds for the 60 milligram group. 
uh, respectively. For 40 milligram group, the average prolongation was estimated to be at about 12.6, and that was based solely on serum concentrations. Uh, though the absolute change in the QTC was modest, the FDA concluded that there's not sufficient evidence that from a therapeutic belt point, 60 milligrams of citalopram should be used over 40, and that the risk of developing QT prolongation was so much greater that probably shouldn't do that. Um, there have been prior studies that suggested, maybe that suggested at least an overdose that there was QT prolongation, as well as prior studies that suggest that other SSRIs have developed QT prolongation, but everyone is still focused on citalopram. Um, and then we go, despite the, they move on to discuss that citalopram versus escitalopram. We know that structurally that they are similar to each other, but we have, the FDA has not given the same recommendation regarding QT prolongation to that one. Um, a thorough QT study of escitalopram, um, which was almost essential to the study that was previously described, found a dose-dependent but substantially less marked increase in the QT prolongation with escitalopram, 4.5 milliseconds if you're taking 10 milligrams, 10.7 milliseconds if you're taking 30 milligrams. Case reports have linked other SSRIs, but there are no prospective studies to support what's going on. At least in 13 studies designed to measure the effect, five of them using fluoxetine, five using peroxetine, failed to show any association between those agents and QT prolongation. Current evidence still suggests that citalopram may be separate from the rest of the SSRI in its propensity to cause QT prolongation. What we also know is that citalopram is known to inhibit HER in animal models, which is, which is responsible for the generation of that delayed rectifier channel, and that the development of citalopram was delayed initially due to just that QTC prolongation and arrhythmias that were found in beagles. Um, the metabolite that they identified was di Didesmethyl citalopram, which appears to be species-specific, um, though it may appear in humans to very small amounts. Though 2% of the United States population are P450-2D6 ultra-metabolizers, and thus may have a higher concentration of this, of this particular metabolite. This may explain QT prolongation appears more common when citalopram is used than with any other SSRI. And perhaps also with why escitalopram doesn't, because it may not be metabolized as much. And then to kind of counter that as well, we know that fluoxetine is a HER is a HER inhibitor, and does have some additional calcium channel blocking effects, but that may be mitigating what's going on for, in terms for QT prolongation. Um, despite despite the risk for prolonged QT prolongation with citalopram, there's no consensus on the management and the use of citalopram and overdose. You can find recommendations for monitoring only when there's more than 600 milligrams ingested or minimal observation of 24 hours with continuous EKG. And some have further suggested giving activated charcoal regardless just to decrease that risk of QT prolongation. Um, in general, QT prolongation is relatively low with citalopram even in overdose. Uh, in a group of 215 patient studies with citalopram overdose, only 32% had QT prolongation over 440, and 2% had QT that was over 500, although that 440 cutoff is still below what is accepted as the normals for both men and women. All right. So it doesn't happen very often, but we often worry about it yeah. quite a bit. <laughs>
we move on to <laughs> we move on to our other antidepressants uh, the TCAs. We know that TCAs can exert their effects via sodium channel blockade, leading to QRS widening as well as calcium channel blockade, which is which can lead to QT widening, QT lengthening, but through a separate effect than your SSRIs. Um, the TCAs really only seem to pose a significant risk of ventricular arrhythmia in those with pre-existing cardiac disease, including intraventricular conduction delay or ischemic heart disease. However, just like the other QT prolonging medications, they do block that delayed potassium rectifier channel. A systemic review in 2004 pointed out that there were 13 cases of torsades with TCAs, finding that amitriptyline and amitriptyline to be most commonly implicated whereas clomipramine appears to be associated with the least amount of QT prolongation. A single case report has linked a therapeutic dose of venlafaxine to QT prolongation, but no systemic studies have shown any association. A uh, study examined venlafaxine in overdose and found that QT prolongation, again greater than 440, occurred in only 18% of patients and greater than 500 in only 1% of a total of 223 individuals which is still lower than the rate that we're which is what we see for citalopram. Mm -hmm. In that same study, people adjusting mirtazapine had a 16%. 16% uh, had prolongation greater than 440, with no one having prolong rate, prolongation greater than 500 milliseconds. Among other agents, tuloxetine has not been associated with prolongation of the QT. Um, some have had prolongation of the QT with bupropran overdose, though this is often confounded with tachycardia, Again, we're talking about torsades. We do know that tachycardia is going to be protective for us against torsades. Uh, no studies have ever actually linked the therapeutic doses of bupropion to QT prolongation. Moving on from our antidepressants, we move to our antipsychotics and QT prolongations. And I think this is the one that we all know the most about or most worry about. Um, it's been long known that we can get QT prolongation with our antipsychotic medications and that that can lead to torsades. Retrospective studies have linked antipsychotic use with sudden cardiac death in most antipsychotics, again, can cause QT prolongation. Thought being maybe we're just missing the torsade point. We start with our typical antipsychotics. Thyroidazine was our first and it is the one that is most associated with QT prolongation and torsades. It poses the greatest risk uh, in a randomized prospective trial studying the effects of it on healthy individuals, thyroidazine at 300 milligrams per day showed the greatest prolongation of the QTC up to 30 milliseconds compared with suprazidone given at 160 milligrams per day, risperidone at 16 milligrams per day, olanzapine, and Seroquel. Uh, the phenothiazine in general and thyroidazine in particular are, off, are overrepresented in the cases of sudden cardiac death compared to antidepressants or other types of antipsychotics. Suggesting that the QT prolongation with the phenothiazines may be more arrhythmogenic, especially in patients with comorbid risk factors. Although thyroidazine is most commonly associated with QT prolongation, other antipsychotics have been implicated. Flufetazine is a high-potency antipsychotic that has been associated with QT prolongation in patients with schizophrenia. Troperidol prolongs the QTC and has clearly been associated with torsades. Chlorpromazine is a low-potency phenothiazine like thyroidazine and has been known to block that 
potassium rectifier channel has been associated with QT prolongation and may cause torsades in high doses. In general, low-potency typical antipsychotics are thought to carry the greatest risk rather than the high-potency agents, and the risk is thought still to be dose-dependent. More of your low-potency antipsychotic increases your risk for QTC prolongation, which will increase your risk for torsades. Haldol is a high-potency antipsychotic and has been linked in case reports to QT prolongation and torsades as well, though the frequency and the magnitude of the prolongation is thought to be substantially less in comparison to your low-potency ones, and similar to what we see with atypical antipsychotics. Uh, confounder for the use of Haldol is that we use it for the management of delirium in both the intensive care and in outpatient setting and in medically ill patients. So you're sick already, your QT may be longer already. Now we're giving you something else that can even further prolong that QT and have you go ahead and develop torsades. Uh, there have been a few randomized trials. Uh, they start with one where 15 milligrams of Haldol was given daily, only led to an average increase of 7.1 milliseconds of your QTC, which was still less than what you see with thiazine or Zeprazidone but greater than what was seen with olmazepine, risperdone, and quetiapine. Nearly identical study, uh, they said the average was 4.7 milliseconds, which was still less than all the other drugs that they tested in that same group. The intramuscular form um, was found to have greater effect on QT, uh, lengthening up to 8 milliseconds, following a 7.5 milligram IM injection in patients without significant medical disease. In a post-marketing analysis, adverse effects of 2007 identified 229 cases of prolonged QT, including 73 cases of torsades. Though the incidence of torsades cannot be accurately determined, the investigators noted that of these reports were confounded by other QT prolonging medications, medical illness, and a sure quantity of case reports, and the knowledge of haloperidol's propensity to prolong QT suggests that haloperidol may, may well have played a role in the development of torsades in some of these cases. Lest we forget, we can give haldol IV, when this may carry an even greater risk for QT prolongation and torsades than the oral form. In a study of uh, over, just over 1,000 patients with schizophrenia, IV, not oral haldol, were associated with QT prolongation. And then in further post-marketing analysis, 11 cases of fatal torsades um, have occurred eight, 73% occurred with IV Haldol. As noted, this may be explained in the fact that IV Haldol is used relatively frequently in medically ill patients who are most likely at higher risk for QT prolongation and torsades. The oral formulation may be given to healthier individuals with stable chronic psychotic illness. All right, moving on to our atypical antipsychotics. We have they also appear to have a high risk of QT prolongation, though these agents have only been implicated in the development of torsades in very rare case reports and in the FDA event reports. In healthy volunteers, suprazidone caused the greatest mean QTC prolongation in comparison to olazapine, risperdone, or quetiapine. Suprazidone's modest but definite effect on repolarization does not appear to be dose-dependent. In clinical trials, the doses of suprazidone the incidence of QT prolongation exceeding 500 milliseconds was estimated to be less than 0.06%. Um, this is consistent with the rates that are found that has been associated with the two case reports of torsades caused by suprazidone. 
in two randomized open-label trials, lamsipine and quetiapine, risperidone and quetiapine were found to have less QT prolongation than thyridazine and comparable effects to oral halidol. Uh, these medications are still associated with QT prolongation, but the association with torsades is not clear or definite. Uh, let's see. Let's see that the risk for developing torsades in the, would suggest that it most likely occurs in groups that have just recently received the medication within the last 30 days, suggesting that these that some of these cases may be associated with delirium or the management of agitation, again, in the setting of medical illness. In a separate retrospective population cohort, both typical and atypical antipsychotics were associated with an approximately two-fold increased risk of sudden cardiac death. Similar risk increases were found among all agents examined include individually, including thyroidazine, haldol, lanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, and clozapine. Notably, clozapine was associated with increased risk of sudden death in this study. It has only been associated with QT prolongation in rare cases, suggesting that there may be another me mechanism of mediating its relationship with sudden cardiac death. Um, when dealing with your elderly patient with dementia, atypical antipsychotics have been associated with mortality related to cardiac events, some of which may represent episodes of ventricular arrhythmia, such as torsades. This led the FDA to go ahead and place a black box warning on those. There's less data about the newest atypical antipsychotics, eripiprazole, acetabine, palperidone, and iloperidone. Nearly all the data are derived from studies referred to in the reference inserts. Of these, papiridone and iloperidone seem to have the highest risk of QT prolongation, particularly in the presence of 2D6 and 3A4 inhibitors. However, they do not appear to have any case reports at the time of the publication linking it to torsades. Aripiprazole has not been associated with significant QT prolongation in the setting of significant medical comorbidity. Um, they go on to go ahead and give us a nice table to try and help them summarize our risk of QT prolongation as well as development of torsades. Things that are highest on the list most likely to cause QT prolongation in torsades are thyroidazine, our halidol, our zepiridone. So, all things I think we kind of think about in the back of our mind anyways. Move on to other antipsychotic medication, other psychiatric medications. Lithium in concentrations above 1.2 millimoles per liter can prolong the QTC interval, though there have been no cases of torsades noted. Uh, Anticonvulsant mood stabilizing agents including valproate, lamotrigine, carbamazepine, oxcarbamazepine, have not been found to cause QT prolongation. Uh, among the sleep aids, looking at trazodone, which is associated with mild uh, QTC prolongation, and that is mainly found in the setting of overdose. There's no strong evidence to suggest that methylphenidate or amphetamines cause clinically significant increases in QTC, while the effects of adamexetine on QTC remain uncertain. There's no evidence to suggest that benzos cause QTC prolongation either. In conclusion, there are many, many, many risks <laughs> to the development of QT prolongation, some of those being genetic, some of those being polypharmacy, some of those being your continued medical illness at that point in time. Um, the International Registry for Drug-Induced Arrhythmias has the Arizona classification. Um, they keep a nice list of things that, are, that do, cause do cause torsades, possibly cause torsades, conditionally cause torsades. 
and it is a great reference to have. I want to say that they, there's no evidence to strongly recommend that you get an EKG and electrolytes before initiating some of, before initiating these drugs. Although admittedly, it's always been my practice, at least especially with IV Haldol, to get an EKG before starting. Um, earlier, they would also make the point that whenever you are going to do an EKG with a patient that's on a QT prolonging medication, make sure to take the EKG at the same time that they should be reaching their peak plasma concentration as well. Great. I mean, yes, a very comprehensive list of all the drugs. It depends if you're a lumper or a splitter. If you're a lumper, you can say, yeah, all these drugs potentially could be a problem and cause QT prolongation, except maybe erythrozole, which is part of the table, and most of the SSRIs except citalopram. But if you're really a splitter and you say, who's really at risk for true torsades, it really boils down to theoritazine, which is melarilla, which nobody uses anymore, and Haldol, given IV. Um, and maybe the other ones will have a case here and a case there with the rareness of those cases and the fact that we know it's genetically linked, we start thinking maybe there's something else like genetic problems. The one drug they didn't talk about at length, which is sometimes used as psych drugs in other countries, but in this country was used for practically everything else, is droperidol. And there's probably no drug that's been so maligned and was used for everything and now is not used for much of anything at all as droperidol. So to revisit that is a brand new article assessing its effect, safety and effectiveness, as we always like to say, with <laughs> droperidol in the emergency department. So, Matt. Yeah. Poor, poor droperidol. Um, so this is a, a study that came out last month, September of 2015, in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Um, the primary author was Leone Calver, and um, as Zane alluded to, the title is The Safety and Effectiveness of Droperidol for Sedation of Acute Behavioral Disturbance in the ED. This is a prospective observational studies done between 2009 and uh, 2013 across six different emergency departments, um, including about a thousand patients with the primary endpoint uh, of um, determining the uh, Frequency of QT prolongation and torsades to point in patients that were given 10 milligrams or more of droperidol for acute behavioral disturbance. Um, droperidol is a sedating first-generation antipsychotic. Um, the mechanism isn't entirely well known, but some proposed mechanisms include, but are certainly not limited to, um, GABA binding, GABA receptor binding, um, including some of the chemoreceptor zone, which may contribute to its uh, anti-emetics effect, um, as well as postsynaptic alpha-adrenergic receptor blockade um, and possibly some dopaminergic receptor blockade as well. So this particular study, um, as I mentioned, is uh, as a primary endpoint looking to see what the abnormal QT interval incidence was in patients receiving droperidol for acute behavioral disturbance. Um, they were able to, um, in, in all of these patients, and they enrolled about 1,000, I think it was 1,009 in the end, uh, and within two hours of the administration of the drug got an EKG. Um, and uh, they used the sedation assessment tool 
um, which the site is available online, has been previously validated. Um, and that score uh, ranges from three, which is the highest score, which corresponds to physically violent, all the way down to negative three, which is unconscious. Um, and they chose the 10 milligram initial dose based on previously randomized controlled trial, which they cite. Um, and if patients had an IV already, they would give it intravascular, sorry, intravenously, um, and if not, then intramuscularly in either the thigh or the deltoid. Um, if that didn't calm patients down within 15 minutes, they got an additional dose of 10 milligrams for a total of 20 milligrams of droperidol. Um, and after that, if more medications were needed, that was done at the discretion of the treating physician. Um, then they um, recorded the sedation assessment tool scores and vital signs every, every five minutes um, for 20 minutes and then subsequently half hourly. Um, and then they got the EKGs, like I said, within two hours, but uh, as soon as practical um, after safety had been um, achieved. Um, let's see. And then once they got these EKGs, they measured the QT interval manually uh, based on a previously developed method, which they describe at length, which I won't go into here. But eventually they took their data and plotted the QT against a heart rate on their QT nomogram, uh, which has an at-risk line above which the EKG was considered abnormal. So the primary outcome measure of the study was the proportion of patients that had this abnormal QT or were above the at-risk line on the nomogram. Secondary outcomes included um, torsades, uh, adverse events, time to sedation, failed sedation, requirement for additional sedation, and over-sedation, as well as staph injuries. Um, and they used as their uh, assessment um, uh, time of sedation, uh, they considered a patient sedated if, if the sedation assessment tool score decreased by two or more points or was zero, which corresponds to a clinical status of awake and calm. And then they considered it failed sedation if patients were not sedated within 120 minutes. Adverse drug events were defined as any new onset arrhythmia, including torsades, um, uh, oxygen desaturation, airway obstruction, hypotension, or bradypnea. Uh, um, as I mentioned before, they had about uh, 1,009 patients in the end. They did recruit 1,700 initially, and they do make a mention of their sample size calculation. Um, they say they a priori calculated that they would need 950 patients um, to see a 0.5% difference in torsades um, incidence, uh, citing that torsades is already rare to begin with. So their aim was to recruit 1,000 patients, and they met that aim um, in order to have a 97.5% confidence, confidence interval that an abnormal QT occurs in less than that 0.5% of patients. Um, their baseline characteristics were um, are described in the paper, and uh, there weren't any differences across the hospitals that enrolled patients. Um, uh, in no patients was there torsades, um, either in patients that did complete the study or were initially enrolled and then did not complete for whatever reason. So their median total dose of droperidol given was 10 milligrams. Um, their intraquartile range ranged from 10 to 17.5. 
And um, uh, I think the, the bottom line is that 13 of the 1,009 patients, or 1.3%, had an abnormal QT. Um, of these 13, seven of them had another perfectly viable explanation for why they had an abnormal QT, including uh, two cases of methadone, two escitalopram, one of amiodarone, and two pre-existingly abnormal QT. So when they exclude those seven patients, there were six of the 1,009, or 0.6%, um, that had an abnormal QT after receiving droperidol. And again, no cases of torsades in uh, any of the patients. They cite um, as some of their secondary interval or secondary measures um, that the initial dose of droperidol was effective in, in achieving sedation in 968 patients or 69%. Um, and it took about 20 minutes on average, although certainly that varied. Um, additional sedation was required for 435 patients, or 31%, um, and that uh, varied um, either additional doses of droperidol or occasionally, again at the discretion of the treating physician, other medications, including benzodiazepines. They measured over-sedation. That occurred 7.8% of the time, or 109 patients. Um, and uh, confoundingly there, benzodiazepines were involved in... Um, 15% of the patients who were over-sedated, or 16 of the 109, compared to 6.3% who were not over-sedated. Uh, adverse events, there were 71 of those in 70 patients, um, or 5.0%. Um, the common, most common of those being hypotension, or 28 patients, um, and followed by desaturation in 22 patients. Um, they mentioned that additional sedation or sedation with benzodiazepines was not associated with increased adverse events except for this over-sedation, which did seem to be tied with uh, co-sedation with benzodiazepines. There was no difference in the total dose given to patients who had adverse events compared to those who did not. Um, and, uh, and the rest of the article kind of goes on to describe some of the staph injuries and other adverse events which were uh, minimal. So talking about the limitations of the study, um, the, chiefly among those is um, that they weren't able to really standardize when they got their EKG. Um, they do say that uh, they aimed for two hours because this is when the peak effects of droperidol are likely to occur. Um, and that despite the large number of EKGs, the study was still unable to rule out rare adverse events or those occurring less than 0.1% of the time, such as torsades. Additionally, uh, the study was limited um, as far as its generalizability, although for an ED setting, which is what this was, um, it was quite appropriate, but they make a mention of being unable to uh, um, generalize the effects to other inpatient settings or outpatient settings. So um, in conclusion, uh, these uh, patients, a cohort of over a thousand, um, seemed to demonstrate a risk of torsades less than 0.3%. That was as low as they could get according to their um, sample size calculations and power. Um, they had 5% of patients um, uh, experiencing an adverse event, um, including over sedation, 
Um, although none of the oversedated patients required any specific interventions, and oversedation was more common in patients given additional benzodiazepines. So their conclusion was that the study demonstrates that high-dose droperidol appears to be relatively safe and effective for sedation of acute behavioral disturbance in the ED. Um, and they go on to cite this frequency of abnormal QT intervals as 1.3%, both in the study population as well as um, in the sort of general population. And, and in half of the patients with an abnormal QT, there was another clear cause for it. So, um, Yeah, so I mean, a pretty elegant study done with, I mean, EKGs in real time after troperidol dosing. I mean, a large number of patients, 1,700 in all, although the complete data was only on about 1,000, but nobody developed torsades. QT interval was exceedingly rare on the order of 1% or so, and it works as a sedative agent, which is its primary use when we're using it mostly 97% of the time. So I think the interesting things was they also used the QT normogram, which uh, Jeff Dipster and the group down there in Australia has put forward as the real risk factor, not just the QT interval being prolonged, but it being above the line of the QT nomogram, which accounts for heart rate. And so we know that the Bazet's formula doesn't work very well at fast or slow heart rates, and some of the other formulas that have been suggested also may not work very well at really fast or slow heart rates. And this nomogram somehow corrects for that. So all in all, it's sort of like, come back, Traperidol, um, we miss you. Um, it did work very effectively for sedation and also worked reasonably effectively for nausea, vomiting, migraines, and a variety of other uses that we used it for. They used pretty big doses, I'll, I'll say, as a sort of a, a footnote to all that. They were using 10 and 20 milligrams both IV and IM in this country, when we were using it more frequently, we were using on the order of 1.25 to 2.5, so a quarter of that or less in the total doses before the black box, the infamous black box warning came about. And then most of the drug companies stopped making it right now, even if we wanted to say, hey, this is great data, let's use it. There still seems to be a national shortage of droperidol. So what do we use for nausea after that? We use Zofran or Odansetron. Except given 10 or 15 years of using that, lo and behold, people said, well, it may cause QT prolongation as well. So I pulled this next article to kind of cover two topics. One is to look at that, Zofran, and what it does, especially in children. And two, to look at this new concept of another risk factor, which is the dispersion of the repolarization, which is often measured by the T-peak to the T-N interval, which may be um, more accurate as a predictor of, as they made up a new word in this article, torsogenicity. <laughs> so Matt, double duty here, tell us about that. Yeah, so looking at a, a, a manuscript entitled The Effects of Droperidol and Dancitron on the Dispersion of Myocardial Repolarization in Children by Meta et al. in the Pediatric Anesthesia from 2010. Um, this was a study designed to compare droperidol and on uh, and on dancitron in healthy children um, undergoing surgery uh, and so treatment for um, preoperative or postoperative uh, nausea. That was the study study setting, and as Zane alluded to, they uh, the authors 
um, proposed that this transmural dispersion of repolarization, or TDR, um, uh, is rather than the QT interval, um, probably more predictive of susceptibility to torsades. The TDR is measured um, on an EKG as the time interval between the peak of the T wave and the end of the T wave, or TP to TE. Um, the article itself uh, only makes reference to some of the other studies that have provided support um, to the TP to TE and the TDR um, as predictive of um, uh, torsades. So I won't go into that very much. Uh, the study itself is pretty straightforward. They were able to um, enroll 108. In the end, they, they included 80 children in the study. Um, and there were um, several arms. Um, these kids were healthy. They were between the age of 3 and 10. And they were undergoing um, general anesthesia for elective surgeries, including otoplasty or dental surgery. Um, patients had a preoperative EKG as well as a post-administration um, EKG taken five minutes after the study drug. Um, and they said that they chose five minutes because this time interval encompasses the PQTC prolongation by droperidol and ondansetron. So in contrast to the other study that we just talked about. The four study groups were either droperidol alone, ondansetron alone, droperidol and ondansetron, or neither. Um, there were no demographic or baseline EKG differences between the groups, and um, QT intervals lengthened by anywhere between 10 and 17 milliseconds, milliseconds after treatments with no differences that were statistically significant between the groups. Um, it should also be noted that the values of the QT remain normal for all of the groups. The TP to TE interval increased somewhat, 0 to 7 milliseconds, although it was not statistically significantly different between the groups, and um, in no children were there any um, episodes of dysrhythmia. So their conclusions were that um, droperidol and ondansetron in therapeutic antiemetic doses produce equivalent and clinically insignificant QT prolongation, as well as negligible TP to TE prolongation, suggesting that neither is torsadogenic in healthy children at these doses. Yeah, another reasonably eloquently done study with forearms showing that saline can prolong your QT interval a little bit, as much as these other drugs that we worry so much about that, uh, you know, that has the risk of QT's prolongation. So maybe we need to worry a lot less about Zofran, which we use a lot now, and we use it probably as much as we used Droperidol a decade ago, and probably the risk for Torsad with that agent is probably minimal. Well, they did bring up this concept of this T-peak to T-end interval, which may be more predictive. The next article actually was drawn to it by the fact that they looked at that in shift workers, so if saline can make your TP to T interval go up, maybe working nights and does. Unfortunately, I was a little bit let down by the punchline of this, so I'll go over this quickly. Um, so talk about non-standard working hours, which all of us are well accustomed to. It disturbs your biological rhythms, and of course we know that people who work nights 
have cardiovascular morbidity that is higher than the rest of us due to both coronary heart disease, hypertension, arrhythmias. Um, and they then said, well, let's look at this TP to TN interval, which again is an assessment of this global dispersal, dispersion of repolarization and may be the most predictive factor of arrhythmogenesis, at least torsogenicity, as the last study suggested. Um, and they said that, you know, initially, pilot study done elsewhere, so Holter Monitoring shows that, you know, your QT interval changes during the day when you put Holter Monitors on people. So they took shifty 60 shift workers who underwent a standard 12-lead EKG in the morning and the afternoon and the night. Um, these guys were actually car harness manufacturer, which I assume was just done in Romania. That's a, a seatbelt. Um, and these people rotated shifts every week. And they excluded people who had cardiac disease and arrhythmias. They got a standard EKG, and they looked at the QT max, and they looked at the QT corrected using Federica's formula. They looked at a variety of other QT intervals, including the QT peak to end interval, and, uh, and they looked at shift-to-shift -shift comparisons. Um, the results were the 60 workers, 36 years old, plus or minus 10 years, all of them were in sinus rhythm at the beginning, and no surprise, the longest QT interval, the longest TPE interval happened at night, although the differences were quite small. So morning shift QT intervals were like 397 plus or minus 30, and the night shift was 404, so it went up by 7 milliseconds. Not very dramatic. Similarly, the QT interval by the Frederica formula was 494, so longer, um, and went up to 499, a five-point difference again, although maybe statistically was not significant, probably not very clinically significant either. And they found that co-association of hypertension was an independent predictor of who would go up based on the Federico formula by more than 15 milliseconds in shift workers. So they basically point out that, you know, QT is not a fixed point in time for most people. It varies with circadian pattern. It may vary based on hypertension, obesity, age, smoking status. All these things need to be explored. Sympathetic tone, vagal tone. Um, and there is, in fact, diurnal variation. So when we admit someone overnight and we give them something like magnesium, let's say, which is often done, and by the morning their QT interval has come down, and it may just be that they finally got a good night's sleep, and it's nothing more than that that we're fixing and not treating anything per se as far as their QT interval. So let's swing around again to quinidine. This is a brand new article within the last month um, out of JAMA, which looked at a very interesting mix of medications, dextromethorphan and quinidine, for patients with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and agitation. So, Jillian. Great. All right. So, this uh, paper starts uh, with an introduction stating that agitation and aggression are highly prevalent in uh, patients with dementia, and that um, although many different classes of psychotropic drugs are prescribed to treat that agitation, there are a number of safety concerns with many of those medications that limit their utility. And uh, they uh, bring up the idea of a combination of dextromethorphan hydrobromide and quinidine sulfate 
And uh, note that dextromethorphan is a, a low affinity, uh, uncompetitive NMDA receptor antagonist. Also uh, has some alpha receptor agonism and serotonin norepi reuptake inhibition. Um, and the thought um, uh, is that there's, there's been anecdotal report of improvement in patients with dementia, pseudobulbar affect, and um, symptoms that are suggestive of, of agitation. And so what this paper uh, describes is a randomized, double-blind, double placebo-controlled 10-week trial at 42 different sites that used a sequential parallel comparison design method. We'll go into more detail about that. But they enrolled patients aged 50 to 90 years old with uh, clinically significant agitation uh, defined as a state of poorly organized and purposeless psychomotor activity this could be uh, verbal aggression, physical aggression, or things like pacing or restless behaviors that were severe enough to warrant pharmacological treatment. And uh, these were patient patients with probable Alzheimer's disease. And they excluded patients who had different types of dementia, um, other, other apart from Alzheimer's disease, um, or uh, patients with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, patients with myasthenia gravis and whom quinidine cannot be used. Patients with QT prolongation or heart block or history of torsades, family history of congenital long QT um, or unexplained syncope, um, among a few others. And um, this sequential parallel comparison design method involved um, stage one, where patients were randomized to receive three, three to four ratio to receive oral dextromethorphan quinidine versus placebo. And the dextromethorphan quinidine combination was, was dosed as a 20 versus 10 megs early in the morning with a placebo in the evening for the first week. And then that was increased to twice daily dosing for weeks two and three, and then increased BID dosing for weeks four and five. And then in stage two, patients receiving the dextromethorphan quinidine continued to receive that um, higher BID dosing. But the patients who had initially received placebo in that first stage were then stratified by their treatment response and re-randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive either the dextromethorphan quinidine or the placebo. Very interesting design there. Uh, they're allowed to get uh, rescue medication that's needed during the study. And the outcome they looked at was a change in a baseline using the NPI agitation aggression um, domain. And um, each that basically the N NPI that domain looks at frequency of symptoms and, and scales them, um, rates them based on that, and then severity as well. And you multiply those two together, frequency multiplied by severity, and you get a score that ranges from one to twelve. And then they also looked at um, some varying scores, so total NPI score, and um, look at the scores within those individual domains, and then some composite scores. Um, so, sort of basically looked at various ways of scoring at this agitation. Then they also looked at safety outcomes, so adverse events and vital signs, um, uh, laboratory test results, EKG findings, and then they looked um, at QTC, which was corrected using the Frederica formula. And they did a, a, a power calculation and found that they needed a sample size of 196 patients for 9% power to find what they were looking for here. And uh, they basically randomized the patients, um, but stratified them based on baseline um, cognitive function and baseline agitation severity. And everybody was blinded um, to uh, basically the, the medications that they were getting. 
um, the, so to, to track to the results um, here, the, the patients were recruited between July of 2012 and May of 2014. And um, there's a figure one in the paper that's a really uh, big sort of flow chart of, of all of the patients. And just to summarize that very briefly, there were 220 pa patients that were randomized, 127 to placebo, and uh, 93 to the treatment arm in that first stage. And then remembering that, that among those that received placebo in, that, in this study design in the second stage, they then split those patients up. 89, um, so there, there were 30 people who responded to placebo who were then re-randomized, 15 and 15 to placebo versus treatment. And then of the 89 non-responders to placebo, those were again re-randomized. 45 got placebo and then 44 got um, the, the combination medication. So the, uh, the uh, looking at their primary endpoint, the dextromethorphan quinidine combination significantly improved the agitation aggression score compared to placebo, and that did reach statistical significance. And um, results for each of the two stages also favors the treatment arm. Um, in stage one, the agitation aggression scores were reduced from 7.1 treatment um, down to 3.8 versus 7.0 to 5.3 with placebo. Again, with that reaching statistical significance. And then in stage two, remember that the placebo non-responders were then randomized um, to treatment or placebo, and they also had um, a reduction um, in their agitation scores. Um, there were um, patients who were randomized to receive only the dextromethorphan versus placebo for that entire study, um, and those also favored dextromethorphan over and quinidine over uh, placebo. Um, and they, they just note that, that using this, the way they stratified the randomization, um, they have balanced treatment groups for both baseline cognitive function and, and agitation. And then for their secondary outcomes, they again looked at all of these various sort of scoring systems, um, and uh, which basically um, they, they, they then did a, a post hoc analysis um, that showed um, similar improvement in those um, various scores with dexamethorphan quinidine um, in patients taking um, other agents that uh, dementia patients might be treated with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, melantine, depressants, and psychotic. And those basically were the same as those receiving other agents. Um, there were razepam rescue meds that were used uh, by 6.6% of the, the treatment arm and 10.4% of the placebo arm. And then just to summarize the, the safety issues, there were a number of adverse events that were very difficult to tell in these patients with dementia if they were really related to the study or not. Um, but there were adverse events treat, reported by 60% of the treatment group and 40% um, percent of the uh, placebo group. And those varied from everything, falls to UTIs, to patients stating they were dizzy. Um, 12 patients had serious events, 7.9% um, uh, of the treatment arm and 47 of the placebo arm, and that included chest pain, um, anemia, acute MI, um, bradycardia, a femur fracture. So again, lots of, of uh, outcomes that are pretty tough to tell where those are, are coming from. Um, so they're, they're um, then jumping to the EKG findings, which is what we're probably most interested in today. There were no, none of the patients in the study 
had a Q, corrected QTC of greater than 500 milliseconds. And there was really no clinically meaningful differences between the treatment or placebo groups in terms of uh, EKG findings. So they, they go on to discuss that treatment um, with dextromethorphan quinidine demonstrated statistically significant efficacy uh, in terms of reduction of agitation. Um, and, as, and again, across these multiple scoring systems they used that involved both those done by clinicians and those done by the patient's own caregivers. And that the, the improvement in the agitation um, aggression domain was statistically significant at week one and kind of throughout the study with the exception of week six and eight during um, stage two. Uh, so um, generally the, the treatment was well tolerated. Um, despite receiving multiple concomitant medications, as, as I mentioned before, there's really no difference if patients received a bunch of other medications or not. Um, and um, the, most of the adverse events, uh, particularly things like complaining of dizziness or GI symptoms, were consistent with prior studies looking at, at the same um, treatment for pseudobulbar affect. Um, they also go on, then go into a little bit more in the discussion um, about how this might work. So they think dextromethorphan is actually um, doing some of the work here with activity um, in terms of modulating glutamate, serotonin, norepi, and potentially other neurotransmitters, although the, the exact mechanism of action is not really known. Um, but it's been noted that in other studies, um, agitation in the context of dementia has been improved with drugs that act um, at serotonin and glutamate receptors. So potentially, that's what dextromethorphan um, is doing here. Um, they also note um, that um, the, the uh, placebo response um, in stage two uh, was smaller in stage one, and that the response to active drug was also smaller in that second stage where patients were re-randomized, and notes that other studies using this design have that same kind of effect. And then they, they finally, they finished by noting some limitations. It was a short study over 10 weeks. Um, it was difficult to kind of estimate dose-response uh, relationships in this study um, because of that, that brief study and, and dose escalation schedule. Um, and then they, they excluded, you know, patients who were on, on some of the other drugs that may be concerning for QT prolongation, for example. So some of the, um, tri like, like, uh, um, various sort of psych and anti-psychotic um, drugs that could be used. Um, and they also know that, that most of these patients were out, um, that they were outpatients, and so they don't know if this could be really generalized to some of the sicker kind of um, nursing home patients. So in terms of putting this in context of the rest of the studies we looked at today, this study sort of eliminated a lot of the factors that would probably have contributed to the sort of quinidine like effects that have been a, a concern in, in the past in terms of QT prolongation. Yeah, they certainly screened out anyone with EKG changes yeah. or syncope in their history. They also, will point out, use a pretty low dose of quinidine. If you remember, quinidine sulfate was the same thing they were using for those patients with AFib back in the 50s. They were given 0.2 grams or 200 milligrams every four hours. The dose used here was like 10 milligrams, so a very small amount. Say, well, is that really affecting? Why are they using the quinidine in here? And it may be that the quinidine is not necessarily used because of its sodium channel blocking activities, because nothing to do with dementia and agitation, 
but may have to do with its ability to be a P-glycoprotein inhibitor. And it enhances the CNS penetration of this other drug, dextromethorphan. And really, um, this drug is allegedly available for pseudobulbar palsy, which is a relatively rare CNS event, but I imagine with this, people may try it off-label for Alzheimer's. It certainly seems safer than all the other things we do for people who get out of control when they're demented, like giving them big doses of Haldol and all the other atypical antipsychotics, which clearly have been linked to premature death and other morbidities. Um, so, it's, so it was interesting. So again, with low doses, no EKG changes. So unless perhaps worried or worried about torsades, so unless you go home trick-or-treating this week, and not have a little bit of fear in your heart about QT prolongation. We have to end up with an article with something to possibly <coughs> be fearful of. And that is a novel use of the reasonably otherwise safe drug, loperamide. Tell us a little bit about that is our medical student, Ben. Hello. So I'm here to talk a little bit about loperamide abuse. Um, so, as you know, prescription opioid abuse is a big problem in the U.S. There's a nice article here talking about a use of loperamide, a new opioid uh, receptor agonist. And so in this, they uh, talk about its use uh, in addition, uh, use as a people using the community for withdrawal from opioids as well as um, in an attempt uh, for recreational abuse. Um, they described cases with five patients uh, who they discovered the cardio, uh, cardiac abnormalities following loperamide abuse, uh, and they selected these patients. Initially, um, they had discovered uh, the cardiac toxicity associated with um, admitted loperamide abuse in their first patient, but also looking for cardiac abuse uh, or cardiovascular abnormalities in uh, people with known opioid uh, abuse history or um, admitting to uh, paramide abuse. Um, so briefly here, I'll just kind of summarize uh, some of the findings, common findings for the five cases, and then go over some of the um, particular interesting uh, uh, descriptions of their courses. So in um, most of these patients, three of the five patients, singing was actually an initial, an initial presenting symptom. Um, although some of the uh, remaining cases, cases four and five, also talked about having shortness of breath, anxiety, and chest pain associated with it. Um, but all of them were found to have um, sort of a characteristic prolonged QRS and prolonged QT uh, on an EKG. And uh, some of them with higher uh, doses actually had uh, wide, sort of a, a wide, intermittent white complex or polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Um, these were characteristically refractory, lidocaine, and iodorone, bicarb. Um, one patient actually missed cardioverty 15 times unsuccessfully. Um, they were able to treat those people with, uh, those three with the severe cardiac abnormalities, uh, either through transvenous overdrive pacing or pharmacologically with isoproterenol. Uh, and they would continue this for three to five days. And uh, as they were following them, noted that QT, depending on the patient, and uh, continued to remain elevated uh, through days five and even up to days ten in uh, one of the patients. Um, as they followed these patients, they noted that the 
cardiac abnormalities did in fact resolve with cessation of loperamide over the course of their hospital stay. Um, and they looked for co-ingestions, including uh, methadone, quinine, urine drug screens were notably negative. Uh, in particular, one patient had a pretty remarkable course. This was a 28-year-old man with Crohn's disease. Uh, a history of substance abuse, and he actually had a history of unclean syncope about a year prior to his admission following his case report um, and recurrent wide complex tachycardia at the time it was unexplained. Uh, he admitted to having been taken for the past few weeks 396 2 milligram tablets of loperamide for a total of 792 milligrams daily as a way to alleviate withdrawal symptoms. Um, his admission EKG showed a prolonged QT to 647. Um, normal electrolytes, urine drug screen was normal on admission, um, and uh, they, had, they had a number of, uh, he had sustained and non-sustained episodes of uh, VTAC, refractory, to some of those above treatments that I described, mag uh, magnesium, potassium chloride, sodium bicarbolidocaine, did fatty acid emulsion and defibrillation. They were able to successfully control it with overdrive pacing um, and continue that for two days until they switched over to isoproteranol. Uh, keeping them at a goal rate of 90 and then down to 80, um, and using between 2 and 8 micrograms per minute isoproteranol. Uh, they stopped that on day 5, um, and he had one episode of Tersades after, uh, after stopping the pacing, uh, after stopping the pacing wire, um, but other than that, it had been controlled. Uh, as they followed him, uh, they noted that uh, his QRS, QTC, um, all returned to normal and was normal on an ECG a month later. Uh, and as they talked to him, he noted that he was doing this loperamide abuse a year earlier during this episode of unexplained syncope. He also had, so his history was notable for Crohn's disease and a year later suffered cardiac arrest uh, during an operating room visit uh, for his Crohn's disease. Uh, in the OR is noted to have prolonged QT that deteriorated to torsades responding to defibrillation. They had to stop the surgery. Um, after resuscitation and a pacing with isoproteranol for the course of his hospital admission and then subsequent extubation, he did admit to renewing his loperamide abuse. Uh, his claim is 40 milligram, 42 milligram tabs daily at 80 milligrams daily at that point. Um, denying current methadone use at the time, although I noted a couple weeks earlier he was using that. Um, this, in, this, in this case, they go on to sort of summarize uh, that with these five patients with cardiac disturbances, three of them were life-threatening following the loperamide abuse. They, they all resolved with cessation of loperamide, um, and they had this characteristic QRSQT prolongation. Talk a little bit about simulated modeling data suggesting loperamide being an inhibitor of the HERD-coded slow rectifier potassium channel, um, and theorize that this is dose-dependent, sort of uh, corresponding with their seeing that the milder cases uh, in which they took lower amounts seem to have uh, a less QTC prolongations compared to the more um, severe uh, dosing, um, for example, our case above. Uh, they couldn't rule, I mean, given that this was a case uh, case series, they couldn't rule out that co-ingested drug was, drug was responsible. They did specifically assay for 
uh, drugs of abuse, uh, including methadone and then uh, quinine, the things that are known to uh, enhance uh, or uh, cause QT prolongation. And quinine in particular um, has been used in the context of loperamide abuse because it's thought to enhance passage of loperamide into the CNS, being a P-glycoprotein inhibitor. Um, which is thought to be a mechanism, or which is a mechanism by which it's excluded from the CNS. Um, with this study, there's no, uh, it's, they thought about it just being a temporal uh, resolution or relationship, but uh, that positive recurrence, especially in the patient that described, suggests that there may be a causal relationship between loperamide abuse and uh, Q2 prolongation. Uh, there is a follow up, actually, letter to the editor um, by. Uh, the same group of people in which that patient that presented um, initially, or at least one of the patients, it sounds like it was, it was the third patient I described earlier, um, presented again to the ED for a syncopal episode, um, initial ECG showing QT of 704. Um, they ended up leaving against medical advice. Uh, was found several hours later by family, pulseless and apneic. Um, ended up being brought back in, responded to defibrillation, uh, and reported that he had been... Um, so they did see uh, multiple ventricular arrhythmias and tersades. Uh, reported that he had resumed his loperamide abuse up to 200 milligram, 202 milligram tablets daily, so 400 milligrams for the past week. They managed that again with isoproteranol. But interestingly about this one is um, given his sort of slow response, they were they tracked his or his loperamide levels over the course of his admission, trying to get an understanding of the toxicokinetics. Um, reported half-life of loperamide is actually between 9 and 13 hours for uh, therapeutic dosing. And in their initial... Uh, when they were initially tracking this, it looked like his his kinetics were responding similarly, 8.9 hours within an initial decline uh, for the half-life. But as uh, they followed it out over the course of his admission, uh, his admission, they noticed subsequent half-lives were closer to 34.8 hours. This is uh, they note that this isn't in line with uh, the reported uh, pharmacokinetics, but they do note that in initial studies or in studies with uh, with paramide, some of the higher doses in excess of 16 milligrams uh, were showed uh, uh, elevated ha uh, elimination half-lives as well. Um, in his case, it's complicated by his Crohn's disease, bowel resections, and ileostomy. It's possible that there's some delayed absorption related to his gastrointestinal motility and poor, poor absor absorption causing prolonged toxicity. Um, and he had also received some medications uh, that influenced the P450 enzymes 3A4 and 2D6, uh, which had been implicated in loperamide metabolism. Yeah, so a new trend, and basically I think one we should all be reasonably scared of, people using mag megadoses of loperamide, which is often just used for diarrhea over-the-counter, one to two milligrams, maybe a couple times a day now being used in the hundreds to 200 milligrams a day for many days often. Besides these cases that they reported, we've seen a case, we've talked about cases with our, um, our colleagues at some of the other poison centers we interact with. So I think the take-home points are is you have to treat it like a long QT, QRS exacerbation, get aggressive with uh, bicarb, magnesium, and potassium, 
replacement and perhaps isoproteranol or pacing to overdrive them to get them faster than their underlying torsade rate, which is what they go into, so you can slowly back them down. And unlike other drugs that cause torsade, this drug may have a half-life, extended half-life of 35 hours, so you may be in for a four to five day or longer hospitalization with these massive overdoses to, to treat them. Um, so, yeah. So there's always a long QT drug out there that's new. Um, this is the one we should worry about. Maybe some of the ones we worried about in the past weren't worth our worry effort because really bad events occur frequently. And you know, the notion of trying to prevent this, that a single QT interval predisposes to it is, true, is not true. Certain drugs may be more predisposing because they may have unique metabolism or unique effects on conduction. But ultimately, it may be our own genetics that put us at the highest risks of which we usually know nothing about. But um, I guess we'll continue to monitor a few of these overnight, as we often do, but really the worry that something bad is really going to happen from the typical psych drugs, terpetol, and whatnot, is probably a very, very low likelihood and low occurrence. So thanks, everyone, for presenting, and we will see everybody um, next time. With the massive lopiramide. Would mm -hmm. you recommend at least overnight, or would you recommend? Oh, yeah. The, I mean, is like straight to the ICU, no matter what they're looking like in the emergency room. I, know, I would consider treating them with potassium-magnesium replacement if it's low. I would have a pacer nearby. I would get them all set up for their next move and the move after that, because when they have arrhythmias, and you know, it becomes difficult. They tried intralipid at one point, which kind of makes a little sense since it gets into the brain but didn't seem to work. I might be pushed to do that in the future, although there's no good data the way we have it right now. But pacing and isoproteranol seem to be the mainstays of resuscitating these folks successfully. Something we may need to communicate clearly to people when we get these cases, because it's not something that people think of right off the back when they're looking at ventricular rhythm is. I think we had a very few without the arrhythmia, just the YPQRS and the QTC we were able to do. Bicarbonate aggressive electrolyte replacement form, but I know I called you and discussed it. Nice. Sure it was the next thing to yeah. try. But the lake, it's going to really hurt. Yeah. It's another one of those drugs at Costco, you can get like 400. All right. That's yeah. why they use like, it. It's, it's cheap and available. I looked it up on Amazon. You mm -hmm. can get for 25 bucks, you can get 1,200 pills. Yeah, but at Costco, you can get them for less than $5 for 400. And if you buy two. Yeah, you become involved with two. So they're readily available if you have Costco membership. All right.